be reading this morning from Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another, in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led, a, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Y'all can be seated. Let's, uh, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for this time that you blessed us with, Father. Thank you for this word that you've given us. Lord, we pray that your truth will come forth this morning, Father. I ask that you'll just speak the truth and nothing but the truth through me, Lord. Stop me from speaking any falsehood. And help us, Lord, to receive your truth in faith and to store it away in our hearts, Father, and in order that we might put it into practice in our lives. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Good morning. We are, um, for those of you who, who were with us last week, uh, you know that we're still working our way through our series on uh, God's order, and that this morning uh, specifically, we're going to be talking more about God's order uh, for the church, within the church, uh, how we are to conduct ourselves and relate to one another as a local assembly of believers. Um, so last week, we talked specifically 
uh, about the biblical model of church leadership, um, and, and we focused on the eldership there. Uh, we saw that God intends his churches to be led by a, a, a plurality of elders or uh, multiple elders um, who each share equal authority within the church. And so I want to sort of um, continue on in that vein uh, for a bit here to start out. Uh, and, and then we're going to kind of move along to speak about just uh, just what a, a church should do and how all of its members should function together. Um, so we mentioned uh, last week that there are currently two offices, two offices within the church that God has given uh, to the church for specific purposes. And those offices are meant to be uh, filled by people who are uh, who've been gifted, um, who've been gifted to uh to perform these offices and to uh uh to work in these offices. So one of those is the office of elder uh which we we talked about uh in in depth last week. Um and we saw that the that elder is the same as a pastor or a shepherd uh and it's the same also as an overseer or a bishop. We have all these different terms and these different um ways of 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 translating these certain Greek words, but they all refer to the same office. Elder, overseer, and pastor, and each term just kind of uh, describes the office in uh, the, or, or the different responsibilities of the office in a different way, right? So um, when we when we think about pastor, pastor means shepherd, and so that gives us a picture of the shepherding aspect of the eldership. Um, and overseer, right? It means a manager or a supervisor, and sort of that that gives us sort of a picture of that that the managing aspect. Um, or, or presiding over the affairs of the church. So uh, the elders are the spiritual leaders of the church, and they're to see to, uh, see to it that the people are being uh, trained in righteousness um, according to sound doctrine. They're to hold the people accountable to the word. Uh, they're to feed God's word to the sheep. That's the primary responsibility of the elder, is to minister God's word to the people of the church. Um, but they're also to exercise oversight over the the affairs of the church. And they're also, uh, we didn't talk about this, but they're also to lead the congregation in worship, right? And so this is something that, uh, a way that we often uh, don't look at it. Now we think worship leader and we think the, the music leader, right? Um, but the elders are actually the true worship leaders of the church when you really step back and look at it. Uh, because it's the elders' responsibility to make sure that the the corporate worship of the church uh, takes place in a manner that is as faithful as possible to God's word, right? And our worship together uh, includes scripture reading. It includes prayer. It includes hearing the message of God from his word. It includes our fellowship, our time that we are speaking to one another um, and and. The morning before worship, well, I'm saying that's part of worship, but um, it includes all of these things as well as singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another. So worship is more than just the music, uh, and, and the overseers are to oversee all of those aspects of worship. Uh, it doesn't mean that we're standing over everybody's shoulder and saying, no, do it this way, no, do it that way. It just means that the the general um, atmosphere and attitude towards all of these things, um, the elders are responsible for that. So, um, we also, uh, last week we talked very briefly 
about another church office mentioned in Scripture. Um, we talked about the office of deacon. Right? There, there are two offices. You have elders and you have deacons. So um, I want to begin today by exploring uh, what deacons are, what Scripture says about it a little bit more. Um, I do. I, I have to confess here that this has ended up being another one of those areas uh, where I thought I had a pretty good idea, um, pretty good handle on, on what deacons are according to Scripture. But in studying it and, and um, talking with my brothers about it, I found that it, it, it may not be quite as cut and dried as I thought it was. So uh, you have that sometimes. Um, and I actually ended up originally writing a, a good bit more than I'm actually going to end up saying this morning. So uh, I was running some of this stuff as I'm preparing for this. I was running some of this stuff by Jason and Trey. And we, we've had sort of an ongoing conversation this week uh, or over the last several days. And um, we've, we've all come to the conclusion that this is something we need to talk about more um, and study about more and, and, and pray about more uh, because we want to be sure that what we understand about uh, what God says about this topic um, is the truth. Well, of course, it's the truth, but we want to understand what the truth is about what God has said about the topic uh, so that we can put it in, into practice according to his word. Right. So having said all that, that's sort of a disclaimer. Um, I'm, I'm going to proceed here as best I can. Uh, but um, I would encourage you all, if, if you're interested in this, um, and, we, and we all should be, uh, to maybe get into it a little bit on your own. And if there's anything, any insight you feel like you could give, uh, feel free to approach us with it. Um, but to begin, there is far more information in Scripture about who and what elders are than there is about what deacons are. Right? Um, there are really only just a few short passages uh, of Scripture that give us any information about deacons at all. And that's, of course, that's one reason why it's been difficult for us to come to a, a any kind of conclusion about how this office is best put into practice. Um, but we'll, we'll briefly examine some of what is there uh, and, and work our way through it. So um, let's look at uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. We looked at this last week in relation to overseers. But um, All right. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Okay. Here we see, again, these two offices being mentioned side by side. Um, overseers and deacons. So overseers, again, are elders. Um, and the word translated deacon in Scripture is the Greek word diakonos. Or diakonos, and it means literally servant. That's what the word deacon means. It means servant. And most of the places where we see that Greek word diakonos uh, used in Scripture, that's how it's translated. It's translated as servant. Um, but because of verses like this one and uh, other sections like 1 Timothy chapter 3, um, we, can, we can see that Scripture also uses the word diakonos in a way that kind of makes it clear that it's speaking of a specific office within the church. 
Um, and it's mentioned uh, right alongside overseers here. We've already established that overseers, elders, pastors uh, is an office within the church. So because of the way that Paul phrases his uh, his greeting in this letter, we can assume um, that deacon is also a title or an office uh, within the church. And, uh, and and because of this, it also implies that uh, deacons have have sort of a uh, a front and center role within the church, like a role of leadership. Uh, Paul addresses his letter to the church in Philippi through these two groups, right, through the elders and deacons. And we have to assume this because um, as the leaders, uh, these, these were the people who would be reading the letter to the congregation, um, circulating the letter throughout the congregation, right? So um, overseers and deacons as being leaders in the church. And it's important uh, to see that in treating deacons as leaders, Scripture is not giving them equal authority with the overseers. And I think that's drawn out more when you start looking into the office, uh, the responsibilities of what the office of a deacon is. So um, it's, it's, I think if we were to do that, we would see that what deacons do, they lead by modeling um, a life of specific service to the church. They're, they're leading by example, just as elders are meant to do. Um, but they're, they're modeling or giving the example of, of service. Right again, deacon means servant. Um, so uh, they're to lead in their example of, of service to Christ. And they're to lead in their example of service to the other members of the body. Um, so the portion of scripture that has been considered by a majority of the church over the ages to sort of uh, be the place where the office of deacon is established is found in Acts chapter six and uh, beginning in verse one. So um, these verses here, this is where we get most of our information about the, the purpose of deacons in the church, the purposes and the responsibilities. All right. So uh, in case you're not familiar, uh, the book of Acts is basically it's the account of the earliest days of the church. Uh, right after Christ ascended into heaven, after his resurrection, and he sent his Holy Spirit down into his people. Uh, and, and then the Christians, the believers, led by the apostles, began uh, preaching the gospel everywhere um, and organizing themselves into local churches and local bodies. And this part of Acts, here in chapter 6, uh, it takes place pretty early on in that story. Right, the, the church is, is growing in Judea and growing in Israel, um, but this is before the apostles had started really taking it outside uh, of, of Judea to the to the Gentiles. Um, so go ahead and, and start reading. Uh, now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic, Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Okay. The Hellenistic Jews were people of Jewish heritage um, who had probably been scattered in one of the previous exiles. Uh, they, they're, they're, they were Jews by their lineage, but um, when the, the Jews were uh, exiled from Israel to Babylon, uh, some of these uh, families stayed exiled. They were called the Diaspora is what the scripture refers to them as. Um, and so these people, uh, despite having Jewish heritage, they would have grown up 
and cultures that were being far more heavily influenced by like Greek thought and Greek culture. Um, Hellenistic means Greek, basically. Uh, and, and these Hellenists had, had most likely um, moved back to Israel uh, to try to be close to Jerusalem so that they could uh, worship at the temple. Right? Uh, if you're a Jew, you're supposed to be offering sacrifices at the temple. And so these, these scattered people that have moved back and come back around Jerusalem, it's probably so that they could be close to the temple and, and, and worship according to the word of God. Um, so uh, these people, these Hellenistic Jews would have spoken mainly Greek. Um, the, the, the Hebrews of the area would have spoken mainly Aramaic. Um, the, the Hellenists probably had some habits and traditions that look more Greek than Hebrew. So in calling uh, both these Hellenists and Hebrews Jews, right? You have the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebrew Jews. It's important that we see that, that the, both of these groups are Jewish in their heritage. But at this point, um, at this point, they had all converted to Christianity. So here in Acts, when they're talking about the Hellenistic Jews, we shouldn't think of them as being uh, Jewish the way we see the Jewish people today, right? They, were, they, they had converted to Christianity. They were followers of Christ. They were members of the church. So um, we're not told exactly why these Hellenistic widows were being neglected in this daily distribution of food. Uh, but we don't have to believe that it was uh, that it was being done maliciously or purposefully. Uh, these widows would have um, they would have been basically foreigners in the land. Uh, again, uh, look more Greek, spoke Greek. Um, and, and they probably lived further away from the center of Jerusalem than, than like the Hebraic Jews and their widows would have uh, in the outskirts of the city. Um, you know, they, again, they probably wouldn't have spoken much Aramaic, maybe a little bit. Um, and that's the language that the Hebrews would have spoken at the time. So because of these things, because of all of these things, uh, these widows, they just may not have been as visible uh, within the church as the Hebrew widows were, right? And they, they probably would have been less able to express their needs to the church. Um, and as a result of this, uh, they, were, they were being neglected in the, in the distribution of food. So this could have easily been uh, that the issue here had more to do with poor management and uh, distribution of care and administration uh, than, it, than it would have any sinful or malicious, like prejudice. Um, so, and I, I think the rest of the passage bears that out. Uh, so verse two. Um, so the 12, and, and this would have been the 12 apostles uh, who had once been Jesus's 12 disciples, the 12 summoned the congregation of the disciples or the church in Jerusalem um, and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we, whom, we, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So the church ended up, they choose these seven men and the apostles laid hands on them and they appoint them to the work of serving the church in this way. They say, uh, go and make sure that all of the brethren are having their needs met. Um, help us to manage this problem. And so you, you'll notice here uh, in, in 
these, this passage that there is no mention of a specific office of deacon. Uh, but we can see it here if we know where to look. And we'll, I think we'll see it in a way um, that tells us something not only about who deacons are, but it can also tell us something about who elders are. Uh, so I'll show you what I mean. In verse 2, the apostles are speaking and they say, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables or to diaconeo tables, right? Or, or we can think deacon tables. Remember, deacon means serve. Uh, and verse 4 says, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the word translated ministry here is diakonia, um, which could also be translated as service. Right. So, um, so what we see here is that the apostles, uh, who at this stage were the primary uh, leaders of the church, which at the time, again, was confined to Jerusalem and the immediately surrounding areas. Uh, but later on, as the church grows, elders are appointed in each church to continue the role of spiritual leadership that the apostles are filling here. Um, but these spiritual leaders here in Acts are approached with this problem about the unfair treatment of a group of people within the church. And what these men say, they say, it is not right for us to neglect our most important duty in order to serve or deacon tables, instead, we need to be concerned with serving or deaconing the word of God to the people. Right. So I'm using the word there, obviously, in a way that it's not meant to be used, but it's to, it's to make a point. Right. The apostles are indeed concerned about the neglect of the widows. It is their problem. Um, but they understand rightly that their main job was supposed to be the ministry of the word. And if devoting their time to these matters of administration uh, was going to cause them to, to be less effective in their work of praying or preaching uh, and teaching, then they need, uh, they, 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 we're going to have to figure something out, right? This isn't going to work. We got to figure something out. So they appoint deacons. And that's another thing that points to, to uh, an office, right? Is that these men were appointed to the work. They didn't just say, you know, hey guys, go and do it. They, 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 they chose these men out um, and they appointed them. Again, we saw with elders last week that they were commended to God. Um, they, were, they were held up. As, these are the guys that are going to be doing that job. Um, and, and also that they're representing us here. They're representing the elders. They're representing the Lord in their work of service. Um, so there's a way that I can, I can put it very simply here that I think can really help us to understand how these two offices uh, of the church, how elders and deacons should function together. And it's just that the elder's job is primarily to see to the spiritual needs of the church. Um, and the deacon's job is primarily to see to the physical needs of the church. I think that's about the simplest way to break it down. Um, their, their deacons are servants, right? And they're servants in the, in the foot washing, uh, sick, healing, people feeding way that Christ modeled service for us, uh, and, and deacons are to model for us in this way as well. Uh, and it is true, it is true that all Christians, all of us uh, are, to, are, are to be servants, right? We're all to have that servant spirit in our relationships with one another, uh, just as Christ taught us. Uh, but deacons 
should be people who have a like a special gift of service, which includes gifts of administration and mercy and helps and giving. When you really get into these lists of spiritual gifts, um, th- this is the picture of the responsibilities of the office of deacon. So again, deacons are are not a group of men who make all of the business decisions of a church and boss the pastor around. Right, that is not. Uh, the the picture this uh, scripture gives us of deacons, they are not intended to be a board of directors that rules the church, right? They're meant to be servants of the church, and they're meant to be servants in a very hands-on kind of way. And because the scriptures show us plainly that uh, even though there's always going to be a need for making sure that people are fed physically, uh, the spiritual feeding is the most necessary part. So. If the church's elders find themselves being distracted from their primary uh, responsibilities because they're having to take care of all of these other needs, uh, then as, as one writer puts it, he says, it's like the church is removing its heart to try and strengthen its arm. Right? It's unhealthy, and it ends up uh, doing more harm than good. So the elders of a church have the primary responsibility of leadership within the body. They're the overseers, so they must oversee all aspects of what goes on in the church. Uh, and because the health of the body, both, both physical and spiritual, is ultimately the elder's responsibility, uh, so they need to see to it that the physical needs are being attended to. It is their responsibility to make sure these things are happening, um, but without neglecting the spiritual needs of the church. So God gave the church deacons. That's what we see happening here in Acts chapter 6. Um, so in their, their statement that it's not right for us to wait on tables, we shouldn't look at that as some haughty thing, right? Because they're recognizing it, it is still their responsibility to make sure that these people are being cared for. And so they delegate, they appoint uh, this office of deacon that God has blessed the church with, and they send them out um, to do the work. So uh, the deacons and elders are to work together so that all the needs of the body can be fulfilled and the body can be healthy physically, spiritually, and, and emotionally. It's all, um, we're all responsible for that. So uh, another thing the elders must see to it, that the office of deacon is filled by those gifted for the task. Right? The elders have oversight over who's being chosen. Um, and they've got to be sure that the duties of the office are being carried out according to the word of God. So that's the oversight of the elders there when it comes to deacons. Um, so there are qualifications for deacons, there's a list of qualifications, um, just like we saw last week with elders, and they're both found in in the same chapter, First Timothy chapter three. Uh, but I'm not I'm not going to get into that today. I'm just I'll just again encourage you to read that and study it on your own. First Timothy uh, chapter three, beginning in verse eight. And again, if you feel like you have any insight into uh, what it might mean to faithfully implement uh, deacons in the body. Um, you know, you should feel free to approach us with it. And please, of course, please be praying for us as we continue to uh, to look into this, right? Okay, so now I'd like to back up a little bit from looking at these specific uh, members of the body to look at the, the congregation as a whole, right? To talk about all of us and how we're all to relate to one another. Um, there, there are a lot of passages in scripture that I could go to, uh, to, to, to help us work our way through this, 
right? Almost there, there, it was really hard to choose from. Um, and I, I could go about it in several different ways, right? But I want to, I want to begin by talking about something that I mentioned last week, right? And that's, I, I said that every believer has been given a gift to use in service to Christ. Every believer, every one of you without exception, um, has been given a gift to be used in service to Christ and his church. So um, I want to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, beginning in verse 4. I want to start there. Um, Paul's writing to the Corinthian church here, and he tells them, he says, uh, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries and the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. All right now, we don't have time uh, this morning to go into the nature of all of the spiritual gifts listed in Scripture. Right, that's a huge study. And I, I certainly can't do it any kind of justice. It's just a part of a sermon uh, with a broader theme. And these chapters here uh, in 1 Corinthians, chapters 11 through 14 especially, are, are full of information and teaching about how spiritual gifts uh, are to be used in daily church life and, and relationships, and especially in our times of worship together. So I, I will hopefully get into some of this next week, but again, I can't draw it all out here this morning. Uh, but the reason that I did go to these verses in particular is because I want to point out uh, something about Paul's statements here, right? He says, there are a variety of ways that God has chosen to gift his people. There are a lot of different gifts, and they look different uh, in, in everyone. But each person's gift is meant to be used in ways that are specific to the place and the time and the particular body uh, that, that he's placed them in. Right, So all these gifts look different. People look different. The gifts look different. Uh, and through the gifts and the ministries and the way that this all kind of plays out uh, within the church, um, all of these things come from the same God. They look different, but they all come from the same God, and they're all to be used for the same basic purpose. Um, so as Christians, we're all indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That's what, it, uh, what makes us Christians. Um, and, and from this new spirit that's placed in us when we're born again come the manifestations of the spirit. That's what he refers to it here. The manifestation of the spirit uh, for the common good. That's what the gifts are. So the uh, manifestation is a way that, uh, that he shows himself in and through us. Uh, it's, it's ways that his power works in us. That's what it means, a manifestation of the Spirit means. And so if we're believers, if we're believers of this word, uh, we should expect the Holy Spirit to work in us with power. We should expect that, right? To say that the Holy Spirit lives in us is a, uh, a profound thing, right? I don't think it's, we don't even always grasp how, uh, just the, 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 the magnitude of that statement there. The Holy Spirit of God lives in us. God lives in us. And so if this is true, we should expect him to be working in us with power. And one of the ways that the Spirit manifests himself in us is by empowering us 
uh, with certain gifts. And as it says here, these gifts are to be used for the common good. That's for the good of the church. That's what the gifts are for. Uh, and again, Paul is talking uh, to the Corinthians here, the Corinthian church, and he's teaching them how they're to relate to one another in their life and worship together as a local church body. And uh, throughout these chapters, if we were to continue on through chapter 14, we'll see him over and over again urging them <clears throat> excuse me, to use these gifts in a way that serves and edifies the body. It's for the edification of the body. To edify means to instruct and improve. That's what the gifts are meant to do. They're meant to instruct us in the Word of God and to improve us um, according to the Word of God. So it's spurring one another on to good works so that we can become more like Christ, so that we can become more like Christ. Uh, this is what our goal has to be. This is what our goal should be and how we relate to one another as a church, helping each other to become more like Christ. So um, let's look for a bit at what this edification, right, what, what, what this use of gifts for the good of the body is supposed to look like. Uh, and to do that, I want to go to Ephesians chapter 4, uh, beginning in verse 4, and we're going to hang out here uh, for a little while. Um, we actually read uh, some of this last Sunday. <clears throat> All right, let's work our way through it. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Right? With, with all humility, uh, meaning that we are to consider the others within this body as more important than ourselves. Uh, and we're, try, we're, we're to try to outdo one another in showing honor. Right? This is, these are things that Scripture says elsewhere. Um, so that's humility and gentleness. Gentleness is meaning that we, we graciously bear with and be considerate of one another's weaknesses. Um, that, that's gentleness. We bear with one another in our weakness, and we are considerate towards one another in that area. And with patience, we are to show tolerance for one another in love. With patience, we are to show tolerance for one another in love. Tolerance. Tolerance. Let's talk about that word for a minute. Um, the word tolerance means to bear with or to endure something. To endure something. So let me ask y'all, what, what kinds of things is it uh, that we have to endure? That we have to endure? Uh, do we have to endure ice cream and, and fried chicken? Right? Do we have to endure those things? Think about what the word endure means. No, we, we don't have to endure those things. Most of us, most of us enjoy those things. Uh, so we eagerly accept and desire those things, right? But, but what about medicine, um, cough syrup, and shots, and surgeries, right? And, and what about like diets, like changing the things that we eat 
so we can be more healthy. Right? We endure those things, right? Those are things that we endure. Uh, because even, even though they might sometimes be unpleasant, uh, we believe that they're good for us. So um, we can go on. What about like vacations, right? Uh, beach trips, mountain trips, fishing trips, uh, cruises. We, do we have to endure those things? But what about work? Right? What about our jobs or school? You know, I think sometimes we might enjoy uh, those things if we're, if we're really blessed in that way. But most of the time, I think we probably endure our, our, our jobs. Um, see, we don't, we don't tolerate vacations, right? We eagerly enjoy them because they're pleasant to us, but we tolerate our jobs because we know that they provide us with the means to be able to uh, support ourselves and our families, and they can give us the means uh, to be able to pursue the other things that we do enjoy, right? So we endure our work, even though we might often rather be on vacation. Uh, so one of the most wonderful things that God has shown me through my experiences uh, within different churches and, and different believers has to do with what I would, I would say is an, an extremely uh, beneficial design feature, right? We're talking about God's order um, and, and God has placed this design and everything. There's an extremely beneficial design feature that he's built into his command for us to be faithful members of a local church. Um, so. I'm called uh, to be faithful, right, to, to church. We all are, all believers are called to be faithful members of a local church. And so being faithful, it means being there uh, with the other members. I've got to be there. I've got to be amongst them. I've got to talk to them. I've got to have a relationship with them. And it also means loving these other members. That's what faithfulness in a body is, loving my brothers and sisters. And... I have absolutely no control over who God puts in any church that I'm in. I have no control over that. If I'm being faithful, I can't reject any believer who, who seeks to be a part of the fellowship. Um, and I can't faithfully leave a fellowship just because there might be certain people there uh, who are not my kind of people. All right? Uh, not, not the type of people that I might seek out on my own to be in my friend group. So as a faithful member of a church, uh, I'm most likely going to end up surrounded by people who don't uh, think quite like me. They don't uh, talk quite like me or who have personalities that may even clash with mine. All right, people from different backgrounds, uh, of different ages, who've been shaped by different experiences. And, and God says to me, he says, these are your brothers and sisters. Love them. And, but God, they're, they're not always easy to be around. I don't care. You got to tolerate them. You got to patiently tolerate them. Love is not always a feeling of just pleasantness and fondness. And oh, they, they make me laugh and just feel awesome all the time. Right? Uh, think about the people that you love the most in your life. Um, has that been your experience? Right? Do, do they ever annoy you? Uh, or make you angry? Right? Your husband, your wife, your brother, your sister, your parents? Um, love is not primarily a feeling. Right? Uh, though, though many feelings do come along with it, 
some pleasant, some not. Love is primarily a choice. Love is a choice uh, that we have to make every day. Um, it's a choice to be selfless. It's a choice to be humble. It's a choice to forgive. It's a choice to extend grace. And it can be a very hard choice sometimes. Right? It's not always pleasant. Um, but the beautiful thing, the beautiful thing about it is it's always, always good. It helps. Uh, it helps us and it strengthens us uh, while it also helps and strengthens those that we're loving. True love always builds up, whether it's pleasant or not. Uh, and it always works for the good of those who, who practice it. It always edifies. That's what we're talking about here. It always edifies. So this is what tolerance means here, right? It means uh, showing love even when you don't feel like it, right? Even when your brother or sister might be the type of person who often rubs you the wrong way, right? Your good and gracious God gave you that person as a gift to grow you and to strengthen your love, right? And not the feeling, not the feeling, but the ability to choose it even when it means that you have to endure that choice, right? And, and, and that is a beautiful grace of God, right? You know, I mean, you know you rub people the wrong way too sometimes, right? Right, people have to forgive you too uh, and choose to love you even when it's difficult. Um, so let's view it. Let's view it in this way, church. Let's embrace these opportunities to tolerate one another. Right, because when all the parties involved do this, 100% of the time, 100% of the time, we'll find that our relationships as brothers and sisters will become more and more pleasant. Right, and tolerance will give way to enthusiastic enjoyment of one another. That's the way that God has set this up. Right, we just have to invest grace and time and a little bit of patience. And we have to be patiently tolerant. All right, moving on to verse three. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Okay. Um, we talked about this a little bit last week. So it, it, it's important to see that the peace and the unity here are not peace and unity at all costs. Right? We don't just play nice for the sake of getting along. Uh, the unity here is the unity of the Holy Spirit. The unity of the Spirit. Uh, and this is the, the same Holy Spirit that Jesus calls the Spirit of Truth. In John 14, 17, Jesus says that we know the Spirit of Truth because He abides with us. He lives in us. Uh, in John 15, 26, Jesus says that the Spirit of Truth will come and testify about Him. Right, he'll, he'll reveal to us the truth about Christ, um, who also calls himself the truth. Right, He says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. In John 16, 13, Jesus says that the spirit of truth will come and guide us into truth. Right, So the unity of the, of the spirit and the peace that we're to be diligent to pursue is unity in truth. Unity in the truth. The, the truth is... Is, is what's most important in our fellowship. Every aspect of the way that we relate to one another and that we worship must be done in truth. We're to worship in spirit and truth. We're to love in truth. 
We're to admonish and rebuke in truth. Um, uh, unity and error. Unity and error. This go along to get along, um, agree to disagree, and these important spiritual matters. Uh, unity and error is a false and destructive unity. And there is no true peace in it. Uh, because without loving accountability to the truth, uh, we, we'll, we'll drift into sin and misery and destruction. Right? Every bit of encouragement and help and every way that we minister to one another within the body must be based in and it must point to the truth as revealed in the Word of God. It's all got to be centered in the Word. And sometimes uh, the truth that comes from this Word hurts. Um, but if we let it, it will also heal and strengthen and restore and, and help us along in our efforts to be more like Christ. To be more like Christ. So don't, don't, don't lie to me for the sake of keeping the peace. Right? That, that's not the kind of unity that God has called us to have together. He's called us to submit ourselves to the truth and to hold one another accountable to the truth. Um, that is the peace and the unity that's being spoken of here. So verse 4. Verse 4. There we go. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Right? So this is just like we saw in the first Corinthians verse we talked about earlier. It's this idea that there are many manifestations of the gifts of the Spirit, many gifts and many differences within us uh, as individuals. Right? But we are all part of one body. We're all part of one body together. It's this idea that the hand is not an eye, right? And a foot is not an arm. But all of these parts have a part to play within the body as a whole. They're different. They have different jobs. They look different. But they're all to work for the good of the body. Um, so uh, we're all part of one body. And uh, these gifts uh, all have one source, right? Uh, the Spirit of God, the one Spirit. Um, and there's only one hope, and this one hope is in uh, the only true Lord, um, the only true faith. There's only one. And each of us share in one baptism, right? And so, again, this is like with our baptisms, a lot of times we, we make a big deal out of them for individuals because it is a big, a big step. It's something that should be celebrated in every individual's life. But the, uh, what we're expressing in baptism it, it really is, um, it's about the body as a whole. It, it, it's a sign that I am, I am entering into this body. I'm becoming a part of this body. I'm becoming a part of the body of Christ. So what, there is this individual aspect and in that we're each called to obedience in this way to be baptized. Uh, but ultimately, there's only one baptism. One baptism. It means the same for everyone. And everyone's being baptized into the same faith into the same body, into the same Lord. Uh, so baptism means the same thing for every believer. So we all share equally in all of these things together, even though we're given different gifts 
right? So no one of us is more special to God uh, than any other, whether you're an elder or a deacon or a new convert. You just got baptized yesterday, right? Whether you're rich or poor or, you know, slave or king, we're all loved in the same way in Christ. We're all destined for the same eternity to share in the same glory. And just because one person might be gifted in ways that tend to maybe receive more recognition or attention than others, every gift is useful and meaningful. And every gift is given, uh, is meant to be meant to glorify God. And just because one has this gift and the other has that gift, uh, that, that, that doesn't mean that God considers one person better than another. There is, there is no partiality with God. Right? God gives gifts as he sees fit for his purposes, uh, according to the counsel of his own will. Not because of anything he sees in any one of us. It's, it's because of how he has chosen to use us. That's, where, that's what the gifts are. The gifts, um, they're, they're ways that he's equipped us to be useful to him and his kingdom. Okay, verse 8. Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended, far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. Now, I was so tempted to really just dive in here right um i really wish that uh that i felt free that I, that I had time to give an explanation of what these verses mean um this is this is speaking of jesus right and i think we all get the the he gave gifts to men part but the descending and ascending and, and capturing stuff isn't really uh pertinent to our topic this morning right so i'm, I'm gonna leave it alone but if you're curious uh, if you're curious, I'd love to tell you what I believe is going on here. Um, so feel free to ask any time. But for now, I'll just say uh, that, that Paul is quoting here from Psalm 68. Right? He's quoting from a psalm when he says, uh, when he ascended on high, uh, he led captive a, coast, a host of captives. Uh, but he's, he's not doing that. He's not quoting this psalm uh, to, to highlight anything about Christ descending and ascending except that he wants to point out that after Christ ascended into heaven, he gave gifts to men. And that's what we see going on. Um, you know, Christ, before, after his resurrection, he tells, and, and before his ascension, he tells his disciples, wait, wait in Jerusalem until I send my spirit down, until I pour my spirit out among you. And that'll, that'll give you the gift uh, to be able to go and bring forth this gospel with power to the nations. And so after Christ ascended, uh, up into heaven to the right hand of the, uh, of the throne of God, then he sends the Spirit down and the gifts come with the Spirit. And so that's what Paul is saying here. Um, so he's about to start talking about these gifts, so he quotes these verses from Psalms to draw that out. And he feels the need here to explain uh, what it means that Christ had ascended. So he explains that a little bit. Um, but, but to dig into it, it's an in inter interesting like part of Scripture. Uh, several different opinions about it, um, so I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go there. But again, if you're curious, I'll be around after service. So, um, so 
We just need to understand that he's quoting a psalm as support for the teaching that God has given gifts to his people. Um, after Christ ascended into heaven, he sent his spirit down. And with the spirit came the gifts. So verse 11. And this, we read this last week. He gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. All right. Uh, so we looked last week and we noted that this is the only verse in all of Scripture where we find the English word pastor. Right? I mentioned uh, that the word uh, pastor wasn't even being used here as a title. And that God had given the gifts of apostleship, prophecy, shepherding, uh, etc., evangelism. Um, but I want to I kind of walk that back uh, just a bit, actually, um, or, or, or maybe open it up a bit more. So I, I do think that the gifts mentioned here in this context are speaking specifically of people. They are speaking specifically of people that God has gifted in a particular in particular ways. Right. So God has given to his church people with the gifts mentioned above uh, mentioned here in this verse. This is what this text is saying. But again, these roles listed here, are, they simply refer to certain ways that people exercise the gifts of the spirit within the church. Um, and all of these roles might require people to be gifted in, in, in several different ways. Right? For instance, the, uh, the, the apostles, uh, the apostles were the early teachers of the church and they held uh, the highest seat of authority. Uh, and they were, they were made up of Jesus's disciples minus Judas, um, as well as Paul. Uh, and, and they were all men. Um, the apostles were all men who had heard directly from Christ and they had been given power to perform miracles in order to attest to the truth of their message and the power of Christ. This is who the apostles were. This is what an apostle is. Right? These are the two distinguishing characteristics of apostles. Um, they, 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 they were face-to-face -face with the risen Christ, and they were given power to work miracles uh, to attest to the truth of their message and their ministry. Um, but the apostles were gifted in more than just this way, more than just uh, the ability to work miracles, uh, healings and tongues and whatnot. Uh, they also obviously they had the gift of evangelism. Uh, that's what they did. Uh, the word apostle means sent one, it means sent. Um, they were sent out by Christ to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. And most of these apostles, they also had the gifts of teaching and prophecy. Right? The apostles, uh, Matthew Peter, Paul, and John wrote almost all of the New Testament. Uh, and some of these other apostles, they, they probably had other gifts too. Right? So God often, he doesn't just give each believer one gift. Sometimes he might, but he often gives believers multiple uh, spiritual gifts. Um, I mean, we were talking about deacons earlier. They, the gift of service, the gift of mercy. Uh, the gift of administration, right? Um, they, they really need all three of those to be an effective deacon. Uh, so uh, moving on here, we saw that many, if not all of the apostles were prophets, right? But we also see here uh, that there were prophets who weren't apostles. We see them mentioned side by side, apostles and prophets. So uh, there were people who had the gift of prophecy, but they weren't among the apostles of the church. Right, we see these these prophets uh, and instances of this mentioned throughout the New Testament. Right, so um, with, without going too far, 
into what the New Testament means uh, when it speaks of prophets and prophecy. I, I want to say that these roles listed here in Ephesians 4, all of these roles uh, that we see here, they represent roles of authority in the, in the church, in the early church. But not all of these roles are still active in the same way today. Right? Not all of these roles are still active in the same way today. Um, there are no more uh, prophets and apostles as God is speaking of, as Paul is speaking of them here, or God speaking through Paul. Right? There are no more prophets and apostles in the way that this is speaking of them here. So let me defend that. Uh, these two roles, uh, apostles, uh, apostles and prophets, are listed together several times in Paul's writings. Right? And, and, and a, a few times apart from any of these other roles, they're mentioned together. Um, so we're going to look at one of those instances. We're going to go back a couple of chapters and look at Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. There we go. Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So uh, we see here that the foundation of the church, he's saying the church has been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, um, or more specifically, the teachings of the apostles and the word of the prophets, which are the teaching and the words of Christ of the cornerstone, right? So we've seen that, that apostle means sent one. Um, whether the Greek word for prophet uh, means one who speaks forth, right? So the apostles were men who were directly sent by Christ. They were empowered uh, for the work that Christ intended for them to do, and they were sent out by Christ. Um, and the prophets, the prophets received and spoke forth direct revelation from God. God gave them direct supernatural revelation and they spoke it to the church. Right? Um, and, and it was necessary for these people, for these prophets and these apostles, to have these direct uh, and, and, and authoritative experiences with Christ because God was going to use them to lay this foundation on which he was going to build his church. Um, now, in the New Testament, at the time that Paul was writing, the church had this foundation being laid through uh, the face-to-face -face teaching of the apostles. The apostles were alive, were in their midst, were guiding them, had authority over them, were leading them in all of this, um, as well as being able to actually hear the revelation that God spoke forth from the prophets. The prophets also were speaking in their midst. Um, so these things are where they got their uh, understanding of Christ's teachings and God's work in the church. They didn't yet have the full testimony of Scripture. Now, this is before the New Testament was even complete, had even been written completely, before it was compiled. Um, so they received their knowledge of, of the foundation of the truth, of the teachings of Christ, directly from the mouths, the lips of these people. Um, but now, now, we have this foundation, right? This foundation that they're speaking of. We have the full and complete testimony 
of the apostles and prophets in this Bible. The whole thing, every last bit of it, um, everything that we need, the foundation that the church is built on. A foundation only has to be built one time. Right? You don't build a foundation, then build a first floor, then build another foundation on top of it. Um, and because the apostles and the prophets built that foundation so well, they built it perfectly according to God's uh, intention. It doesn't have to be constantly rebuilt or added to. The foundation is laid. Um, so God has given all of the divine revelation that he intends to give in this written word in the scriptures. That's what we have as our foundation. So we don't need new revelation. We don't need new prophets. We don't need new apostles. Uh, the, the canon of scripture is closed. The book has been written. The book's been written. And, and the book is sufficient. All, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness so that we can be equipped for most good works. But we still need a little help down the road. Right, so that we can be equipped for every, every good work. The scripture equips us for every good work. Nothing's left out. There's nothing that we need extra revelation from outside of scripture to accomplish. And he has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything. We are lacking in nothing that we need to understand God's work and to do it. Um, it's all right here. So there's no more need for apostles and prophets within the church. And God doesn't raise people up in that way anymore. So, let's finish up Ephesians uh, chapter 4 quickly. Verse 11. Um, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Right, again, um, the purpose of all of this, the purpose of all the gifts and specifically of these roles he's speaking of being uh, that were given to the church, the purpose is to equip the saints so that they can serve one another, so that every member of the body can become more like Christ. More like Christ. That's the goal. That's the goal. Making us more like Christ. No other goal. That's it. That's what church is about. Making believers more like Christ. Um, it's the vehicle. Church is the vehicle that God has chosen to use to make his people more like his son. It's the, the vehicle that he has used in which to work through his Holy Spirit to conform us to the image of his son. This doesn't happen outside of fellowship with other believers. All right, uh, verse, verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Right, so this work, this work is to continue until every member of his church, every member of his body is fully conformed into his image, fully, completely 
perfectly conformed until we all become just like Christ. Or in other words, until he returns. All right, the scripture says that when we see him, we will be like him. But until then, it's a process. It's a process. It's a step at a time. It's the process of sanctification. Right? The process of sanctification is the process of being made more like Christ. And he who has begun a good work in you will be faithful to carry it through to completion or perfect it in the day of Christ Jesus. That's Philippians uh, 1.6. So not only are we to be uh, conforming, slowly being conformed to the image of Christ, but we have a promise that if God is conforming you, He's going to, one day you're going to be completely conformed. That work is going to be finished in you. When we stand before Christ face to face, we will be like him. All right, verse 14. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful Scheming. We talked about this last week too. Right? As a result of the building up of the body in the word. And I want to point out again, all of this that we're reading is in the context of church. It's in the context of believers interacting with one another. These things don't happen outside of that. And outside of that, outside of that fellowship, this is where you end up. Tossed about here and there by waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness. As a result of the building up the, of the body and the word, we become anchored in the truth of the word so that we won't be deceived by false teaching and false teachers. When we know the word and when we know what's not in the word, we can't be tricked. Right, so when the leaders of a church of a church teach sound doctrine, as First Timothy chapter three commands them to do, as we saw last week, then the church learns to reject false doctrine. When we know the truth, we can recognize falsehood. Right, and in another way that we that this is accomplished is our accountability that we have with one another. When we're all in this together and we're all uh, walking alongside each other and we see people straying off into these, these winds of false doctrine, we can grab hold of them. We can point them to the truth. We can bring them back in. Again, it's the sheep that wander outside of the fold that are in danger. They have to be brought back in. So verse 15. But speaking the truth in love... We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head. Speaking the truth in love. Uh, again, we don't attain to the unity of the faith or to the fullness of Christ by lying to one another. Right? Or by not correcting false doctrine when we see it. Or by coddling one another in, in, in our sin for the sake of keeping some false peace that's not according to the truth. Right? Speaking the truth in love sometimes means extending someone the kindness of telling them that they're acting sinfully. Speaking the truth uh, in, in love, it, 
I'm not going to go there, but as, as we are commanded over and over and over again. I could give a list of, of scriptures where we're commanded to look out for one another in this way. Um, where we're commanded uh, to, to look out for sin in the body. And then to, when it's seen, to offer the gentle rebuke, the gentle correction um, in love. So, um, just for a second here, um, we'll talk a little bit about the process of church discipline, right? Because in a way, that's kind of what we're talking about here anyway. Um, the idea that, that we discipline one another, right? And that doesn't mean that we're, you know, uh, punishing one another. It doesn't mean that we're running up and, and smacking people's hands when we see they're doing something wrong. But it does mean that we're holding one another accountable, right? That's what church discipline is. Um, and and it's, this is crucial. This is a crucial aspect of our life together as a church. Uh, and Christ himself commanded uh, us to exercise church discipline in Matthew chapter 18. So we're going to jump there for just a second. Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 15. All right, speaking the truth in love. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. Go and speak the truth in love to him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. This is what it's all about. This is what accountability is about. This is what church discipline is about. Discipline and rebuke and correction should always be about restoration. It should always be about restoration. It must always be done out of love and a desire to see your brother or sister uh, walking in the truth. That's why we do this. Uh, rebuking sin and correcting error are acts of love intended to win your brother back to the truth. All right, next verse. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Let him be as a Gentile and a tax collector. This means that that person is to be put out of the church. This is what Jesus is saying. That this person is to be put out of the fellowship. And there's another passage that outlines the procedure uh, for church discipline in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Um, we're not going there, but in verse 6 of that chapter, Paul gives the reason that the unrepentant sinner must be removed from the fellowship. Right? He says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Scripture describes sin as being like leaven in bread. Uh, it grows and it multiplies until it's worked its way through the whole lump of dough. So Paul says you need to clean out the old leaven of the sin and wickedness you walked in uh, before Christ gave you a new heart. And you need to remove the man who refuses to repent of his sin from among yourselves for the sake of the rest of the body. That's what Paul says. He says at the end of the chapter, he says, remove the wicked man from among yourselves so that no one else uh, may be encouraged to sin because they see others doing it uh, without being called out on it, without accountability. When you allow that kind of thing uh, to, to go on in a church, 
that this infects the culture of the church. Right? As, as Christians, we have to take sin seriously. And we don't do that by ignoring it. Um, so, we're prone to wander. Prone to wander. Uh, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We are prone to wander. That's what sheep do. That's why they need shepherds. Um, and so the discipline and accountability of our brothers and sisters that God has commanded that we be subject to is a safeguard against this wandering. Again, it's for our good. So uh, back to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16. Uh, verse 16. All right, we're, we are to grow up into the head who is Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. All right. So what this long, complicated sentence means, we're the body, but Christ is the head. And it's the head that causes the body to work properly. Uh, without the brain to tell the heart to beat and the lungs to breathe and the body to eat or drink, uh, if, the, if the body doesn't listen to the head, it dies. It dies. But if the body listens to the brain's instructions, then each part functions properly. Each part functions properly. It does its job, right? And the body grows healthy. Um, and the purpose, again, the purpose for which Christ grows the body, that's what it says here, is for the building up of itself in love. The building up of itself in love. And what are we being built up into? Into the fullness of Christ. Again, this is the purpose of church. You know, I, I've said this multiple times, but and, and it's actually it's kind of a shame. Because um, this needs to be said. Right? You know, prior to this, if I said to you, what is the purpose of church? What would your answer have been? Would it have been to, to help me to grow and to help me to help others grow to be more like Christ? You know, a lot of times our ideas of what church is for have something to do with completely other things, you know, different things, right? But the idea, the whole reason why God has organized us in this way is because this is the means that he uses to conform us into the image of Christ. This is the purpose of church. We listen to the head and we obey him out of love for him. And out of love, we teach others to obey him and we hold them accountable to his word so that we can all become more like him. Right? Building one another up uh, doesn't just mean being nice to one another or, or doling out empty flattery. That's not what encouragement even means. It's, it's loving in, in word and tongue, uh, but not deed and truth and keeping the peace at all costs. That's not, that's not it. Right? Building one another up means pushing one another to be more like Christ. That's the goal of the Christian life. That's the purpose of church. All right. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I do uh, thank you. Lord, that you've given us church, that you've given us fellowship, that you've given us brothers and sisters. And I thank you, Lord. Uh, even for the difficulties 
that come along with that. Father, you never told us that, that sanctification or that becoming more like your son was going to be an easy process. As a matter of fact, Lord, you told us exactly the opposite. You told us to take up our cross to follow you. You told us what it, what it, what it means to be like you. Lord, is that we serve like you served. It's that we suffer like you suffered. It's that we endure just as you endured. So, Father, give us strength. Give us comfort when we are having these difficulties, Lord. Help us along. Help us to persevere. Help us to exercise tolerance with patience. Help us to love one another. Lord, even when it's difficult. And help us to follow you at all costs. Lord, bless us with unity in the truth and faithfulness in our, our work together, our life together as your church. Lord, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.